You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. And I have Minter Dial, who's the author of a book called Artificial Empathy, Putting Heart into Business and AI. So, Minter, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? My great pleasure, Rich. I'm uh, speaking to you from Manhattan, where the sun is finally percolated. Well, okay. That's where I'm from, New York, so I've been there many a time. So, excellent. Um, so, tell me about this book. What's... Um, is it focused more on that, you know, empathy and human touch is needed in the AI world, or is it just in general? Like, what's what's the focus of the book? So let's say that the focus is on getting empathy to rise in any way that it can. So I, I, I went at it thinking that getting empathy to improve in a business environment would, A, improve business, and two, potentially have a knock-on effect on society, because I've I'm a big believer that business can help change society, and if it wants to, for the better. Then once I, I got into that, how do you encode empathy into a business, it became clear that there are some people, some avenues thinking that it should be something we integrate into artificial intelligence, either because that's good for business, or B, because we don't know how to do it ourselves. Well, I guess the goal is to have it be both good for business, and then there's a big incentive for it to be put in place, Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Well, I mean, ultimately, um, I mean, it's good for society that we should have more empathy because many studies indicate that there has been a drop in the amount of empathy perceived by people uh, over the last couple of decades. On the other hand, I I, I perceive it all the time. I mean, like, uh, you know, um, a lot of stuff is automated now and I hate it. You know, I don't want to go to a tablet and type stuff in or you you go to your doctor like here sign in on this computer and there's no empathy there and you know you get a an email confirmation from someone and there's no empathy there or you know you sign up for a lot of these businesses and you can't talk to anybody like uber it's just like this invisible machine thing how can there be any empathy in that you know so i, I definitely feel a, a, a tremendous reduction in it and i don't like it well so on the one hand you have the automation component of it but actually the the field or the the area where the empathy has dropped, which is far more worrisome as far as I'm concerned, is the, the people. So, so independent of the app, 
and the you know the automated uh, telephone service. It's the inability of people to be empathic with one another, either as colleagues or with customers. And then obviously in the bigger society with the people that you meet in the street who are strangers. And and the the issue then becomes if we're not able to be empathic as human beings, how on earth can we properly code a machine because we don't know what it is in the first place? Yeah, why do you think that um, people become, I guess, colder and less uh, considerate of others? I would think the opposite would happen, but I guess you're right. right. I I, I thought it's just where I live, but I don't know. Maybe it's everywhere. (laughs) What are your thoughts? Well, so I'm using as much as I can the studies that I, I, I look at. And, and I'm going to give you the numbers in a moment, but I think on the one hand, there is potentially a greater awareness of what empathy is. And so we're sort of, we now given it a name and people are more aware of it, like some of these diseases one has. And on the other hand, there are some components or factors that have impacted our ability to have civility and uh, spend time listening to somebody else's story. So these, the, the, the big statistic that I have referred to a lot, and I think is an appropriate one, is a study out of the University of Michigan, which was done nine years ago now. And that study was done with 14,000 college kids who are graduating. And they asked to self-evaluate on their empathy. And then they had done the same study 30 years ago. And in the second study in 2010, the kids of the same age, but 30 years later, self-identified them as being 40% less empathic than their peers of 30 years ago. Well, what does that mean, less empathic? It means, it, it, can you tie that to a specific situation or response? Or you know, how would someone be rated that way? And how would someone feel that way about themselves or about someone else? What are the things that go into that evaluation? Well, on, on the, the big hand is the ability to be understood. And so as an individual, the perception of someone else being empathic towards them is largely categorized as feeling understood. And, and so that's as a recipient of someone else's empathy. And in today's world, with the acceleration or perceived acceleration of time and the consternation around devices and you know, obsession, if you will, around devices of all sorts, uh, you, you've got an environment where people just don't feel like they have the time or want to dedicate the time to properly interact with one another, have a a strong heart-to-heart, even if there's no specific measurable output desired. It's just that opportunity to listen intensely to what the other person is saying or feeling and and to perceive it. And then not to jump in with like, oh, well, I'll tell you my story, but actually just hear out the other person's story. And, And today, whether it's an increase in narcissism, a reduction in time, or an obsession with technology, there are many reasons why people are understanding themselves to be and seeming to feel that less em- there's less empathy out there. Um, do people perceive that certain groups are less empathetic or more empathetic? You know, like men are getting worse, women are getting worse, men are getting better. You know, uh, I don't know. Uh, are there certain regions that appear to you know give a shit more or? Well, there's probably more research that I haven't read because obviously it's a large topic and, and there's a vast number of, of thoughts with regard to that. So not I don't necessarily speak to the truth, but I do have a strong belief 
and some numbers that back it up that show that generally speaking, and this is something that I would call uh, natural as opposed to inculcated or, or culture, to, to women to be more empathic than men. Or if we were to put it another way, the feminine versus the masculine. And the, the notion is that uh, the ability to listen intensely means I'm prepared to make abstraction of myself and, and fully engage in the emotions that the other person is experiencing and forget myself, if you will, at some level. And, and the, uh, there's, there's um, three things that would tend to prove out what has always been an intuition of mine. And the one is that from a, a DNA standpoint, there's a portion of a genetic composition that only exists in women who are seen as being empathic. In other words, this genetic variant does not exist in men. And uh, so there's a, a genetic, there's, there's a reason to believe that we have a genetic predisposition one way or the other. The second is a brain wiring phenomenon where in men, more often than in women, a third part of the brain will trigger out when I'm listening to somebody's story. And that third part of the brain is, well, how does that relate to a story that I have lived? So the issue is then you start you know, taking the story and I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop listening to Richard and I'm going to start thinking only about my story, which is not at all being empathic, although you might think you are. But that is typically yeah. something that triggers only in the masculine brain. Yeah, I mean, my response is to try to solve a problem when someone has an issue. It's hard for me to just sit there and listen because that's, I mean, I guess it's just not me. Like, I think men also want to solve problems and jump in there. And, and women are better at just listening and saying, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. That's terrible. But for me, that doesn't really feel like it does anything. So I have to jump in, I feel like. Exactly right. And that's a typical reaction. You know, at the end of the day, you think you're, you're being kind to the other person. But you, the challenge is actually, A, understanding the real problems behind it. And B, believing that actually listening is an action. Because if you jump in and provide a solution, like you, if you've ever read uh, Women Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus and Men Are From Mars, or I think a much better book, You Just Don't Understand When Men and Women in Conversation, which is written by Dr. Deborah Tannen, the, <laughs> the notion of jumping in with an action, well, wait a second, uh, a, let's say in a caricatured situation, the woman says, I got a situation, I got a problem. The man jumps in and says, well, you know, here's the, here's the hammer to hit the nail. She says, well, don't you think I... I knew that I could figure that out, she says. All I wanted you to do was listen to my problem. And, and that act of listening is is higher degree of empathy. The notion of the action that follows has nothing to do with empathy. That is compassion. That is an action. That is being sympathetic. But it, it really is impeding your ability to be empathic because you're thinking, while I'm talking, well, here's what I'm going to do. And so you're not actually fundamentally listening. You're jumping to a solution which... A, might not be required or desired, and two, might not be the right one because you haven't fully listened. Yeah, it's hard not to. <laughs> Indeed, I agree. But hugely, it just seems like the listening, like what's the good of that, you know? But I know this is back to the men and women conversation, you know, but it, I think, all right, so I listen to you, but I, I guess I feel like if, um, if I tell someone something and they don't really respond and they just listen, then I feel like they're not listening. So I guess I feel the opposite, you know? Like, what do you think about what I just said? And, you know, if they, if, if they say, oh, I was just listening, then I'm like, okay, so what do you think about what I just said? And for me, it feels like the well, opposite is helpful. 
that is uh, probably what I would characterize as not properly listening, because ultimately good listening in an exchange with two people includes reformulating. You know, so, you know, so if you're saying that, Rich, what you're just saying, it seems like if you are speaking to somebody and they're not replying back to you, then you feel like they're not listening. So I'm doing, what I'm doing right now is I'm listening to you exactly. with, yeah. with greater rephrasing, but I'm not providing you a solution. I'm just impressing upon you that I've actually understood what you just said. And then you then, once you feel like you're understood, then you continue on. And the next thing you know, it does me this and I do that. And, and then the, your ability to continue to dive into your feelings actually goes deeper because you know I'm with you. I'm going down your rabbit hole. You've got this issue. I'm with you. And I got your back. You know, oh, that's what this is. And then while I reformulate it, it allows you to think a little bit more. And, and that is actually very therapeutic. It sounds like it, yeah. Hmm. That's good. So um, when you reported um, people experiencing less empathy, was it the people reporting about themselves or about their interactions with others? And who was reporting that? Young people, old people, men, women, is there any skew to what the reporting looked like? All right. So the study that I referred to at University of Michigan was with college students, so young, young 20, 21, 22-year-olds. In, in another survey that I did, uh, and that, by the way, sorry, and that was self-reporting, so that I feel that I am less empathic in, in, the, in the main. I'd done another survey, and this is a survey that was far more broad. Uh, and uh, although I don't have a, a strict uh, sociodemographic breakdown, this survey looked at where other areas of empathy was being either increased or decreased. And uh, amongst the, so one was a, um, a general feeling that empathy had decreased 60% of the individuals who replied to this questionnaire uh, felt that empathy has decreased over the last 10 years. Only 20%, 22% to be exact, believe that it had increased over the last 10 years. Another component was evaluating the amount of empathy within business. And empathy within business was seen as being fully 10, more than 10% less than empathy, and that's sort of amongst your colleagues, than empathy within regular society, for example, at home. And then worse yet was the amount of empathy that companies were demonstrating to customers. And I didn't qualify whether it was through machines or people, but in general. And I think that the issue is that in reality, the vast majority of our interactions are still with people, whether you're going into a store or calling a helpline, there are, you know, there's on balance still a majority that's happening through people if you think about all the interactions. And and that's the that's the feeling is that people in business are so stressed that they don't have time to listen out your issue or provide you with a personalized answer that satisfies fully your situation. And so they are being penalized for that, which is why, um, that, you know, amongst other things, you see much less loyalty to, to businesses because, well, they don't really care about me. You know, sometimes the transaction works. Sometimes I feel pissed off. If I feel pissed off, I'll move along. Right, exactly. How about enable care? Talk about a lack of empathy, at least from my perspective. You know, doctors having no time to talk to you and, you know, I, I don't know, it just seems like yeah. there's none there. Well, you know, A, uh, I, I tend to agree. And it's interesting because naturally in healthcare, empathy is something they do talk about and talk uh, and try to include into the syllabus uh, uh, to, to teach doctors and nurses. On the other hand, 
reality is empathy takes time. And in, in an environment where we're constantly looking for efficiencies and we impose 10 minute limits on the amount of time that a doctor has with each of its patients, for example, in, in the NHS in, in England, it's very hard to be on the one hand empathic and effective and stay within 10 minutes. And, and, and I, I believe that if they were to review this and consider empathy and the time that it takes, they surely would get to better solutions and therefore longer term, better healthcare. So what are the, uh, the, the obvious and the non-obvious consequences of a drop in empathy across all sectors? <laughs> non-obvious in a Roy Bagarver way. Um, let's say in the obvious manners, uh, empathy is, is an incredibly important tool in design. And to the extent that you're designing a product, a web page, or uh, you know any user experience, the ability to think in the shoes of the others is radically important. The the non-obvious statements first. I don't really think that empathy should and could be applied everywhere. So one needs to think strategically about how you're imposing or implying uh, putting sorry empathy into your business and and think where strategically you can do the most benefit because if like the doctor you end up spending all of your time listening and doing nothing <laughs> you will quickly go out of business so you need to, i mean and again in this case in business sitting and listening only really won't satisfy but according much more time to listening to customers needs observing how they act and then acting you you surely get a much better return on investment. So that's the first non-obvious thing. The second non-obvious thing is that in in business um, we we're typically run by more successful, therefore better paid uh, CEOs. I mean they they're successful. They are the, at the head of the company probably for a reason. And success breeds a certain level of arrogance, and and it's been proven that affluence breeds a certain lack of empathy. And, and so the notion behind that is, well, uh, the rich feel they, they don't have to be empathic. They, they sort of feel that they are the, my way or the highway. And to the extent that that's a profile of the person who's leading the company, it becomes even harder. So the issue then becomes self-awareness at the top side of the company as to whether they really are prepared to make the changes themselves uh, before trying to tell all of their employees to be more empathic with their customers. Hmm. So, any recommendations that have come from, you know, your analysis and you know that, that are in your book? Oh well, there certainly are. And <laughs> good news is there are some solutions. Um, oh, without spoiling it, what can you say? You know, I know you. Don't of course, no, no, no. I don't mean no. I don't. It's okay. There's so much in there, uh, and you know, I really get plunge into this notion of uh, putting empathy into AI and so much more. So it's it's a complex thing. So um, let's say that the the first thing I, I recommend as a company, if you've decided that empathy, hmm, that could really be uh, improving our ability for design and customer satisfaction and performance in general, is to take a good old look at your culture and put a mirror up about the level of empathy of the senior team. Because if you intellectually understand that empathy is a good thing. You and I, Rich, get this and we're like, cool, that's really what we want. But actually, we aren't or we don't have the bandwidth for it or really give a shit enough to do it. Then the chances of, of any program that we put in place happening or working 
at least over a period of time are, are, are generally going to tend to zero. You have so to lead with uh, whatever you want to have happen. You have to lead. It includes uh, showing empathy. Absolutely. I mean, you know, like I think all change, that is a rule of thumb. And and we are talking about change because business schools, historic, have never been including in their syllabi courses on how to be more empathic as a leader. You know, it's sort of soft tissue and namby-pamby stuff. And, and in balance, it's not a word that you will have heard coming up through the ranks in any of these large companies. It's beginning to be the case, but basically it's it's foreign foreign affairs as far as uh, companies is concerned. So lead by example, and then afterwards um, there are you know depending on your culture and what you're trying to achieve, getting into the shoes of the customers just makes sense. It's remarkable how many times the user experience is devoid of facility, inconvenience because of different processes or or an ugly uh, path towards, or too many clicks, and and it will, and and these reasons come because the company has legal team, or the company has a lot of different departments vying for space on the site, or whatever the reasons are. But if if you could literally get into the shoes of the customer and go through the process without being recognized as the CEO, for example, then you might be much closer to understanding the frustrations that you were talking about, Rich, before. When you know you call up the phone and you get have this infinite loop and pissing, you know, horrible pain uh, on on an automated service. Because if the CEO calls, generally speaking, that flashes up on the customer service number. Up, oh, CEO is calling, and they immediately answer and they immediately get his phone. So you need to do it in a way that's like a customer, so they're unrecognizable as a member of the company, and and then see what that feels like. And uh, you know, that's an example of actually walking in the customer's shoes. So what, what do you think is the uh, what does the future hold for empathy? Is it do you think it'll continue downwards and then bounce back because it gets quote unquote too low, or what do you think is going to happen? Well, I I think that we're in a situation in society if that's sort of where the bellwether is, and 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 because that's that's what's most important in life, where there's so much division, it, it becomes part of a bigger question as to whether. We as a com- country, where which country we're living in, we, we care to bridge the gap with the other side. And I mean right with left and left with right, generally speaking, if we're talking in the United States, but it, you know, it's, it's the other side. And there's a lot of divisiveness. And so the, the desire to listen to the other side right now, I don't hear it. I don't see it, whether it's in the media or, or in society. And while the people within your ecosystem and your glass bowl might be showing empathy to one another. The real challenge is showing empathy to people who don't think like you. That's where the real challenge is. And, and in order to do that, you, you have to want to do it and understand why you're doing it. And, and to date, I don't see a unifying factor in society that's really there to encourage us to want to get out of that comfort zone and go walk in the shoes of somebody who is maybe in a very disadvantaged situation, a homeless person, or you know, uh, meet somebody if you're from the left who's a far right winger, and you know, there's right that's now it's more say, yeah. the, the yeah the polarization of politics. That's another factor that seems to have reduced empathy big time on both sides. You know? Absolutely, and uh, and and so right now, if I had to answer whether empathy is going to improve, 
I would say no. And which is why I was so keen on also exploring putting empathy into artificial intelligence. Since if intellectually we might yet decide that empathy is a good way to improve my business, therefore I'll put it into the artificial intelligence. Of course, that's a very difficult task to do. But I, I do believe that there's going to be a greater focus on increasingly being more automated, of course, using artificial intelligence. And therefore, when people actually get it, well, all I need to do is code it. The issue or the, the challenge I lay down is that if you delegate your empathy, the chances are it will not work. It's like the roll of the eyes of the employee when the boss says, you should all be really nice. And he gets out a whip and he whips everybody. You, you, you can just feel the lethargy and the entropy when the culture internally is discordant with what we're trying to achieve with customers. So you need to be congruent in the way you're trying to do this. And just delegating empathy into an AI when you internally do not have that as a culture, you're going to make uh, a lot of mistakes. I would not argue it would all fail and implode. So that's why I was really looking at that notion of putting empathy into AI. And the intention behind it, of course, is to do it better, but also to put up a mirror to say, why do you want to encode empathy into a machine? And are you capable? I wonder if, um, if anyone's done this, if they've tracked you know, an empathy index in certain countries or in the world and, and correlated that with events. You know, like I wonder what empathy looked like from... 1900 up to like 1945 or 1950, you know, with the two world wars, all the things that went on. It would just be interesting yeah. to see if, if someone was able to figure that out somehow, you know? Well, I, I don't think that war as a general uh, activity is good for laying down greater empathy because ultimately it's about knowing the other side better. Uh, the more we do know the other side better, the less feeling we may feel that they are, we're, we're worried about them or, you know, fearful. And we can build bridges. I mean, but... like, uh, imagine, you know, again, before World War II in Europe and the various countries, what if you saw that there was a steady decline in empathy and that what, that's what precipitated the war, for instance? And what if uh, mm. you saw that in multiple instances? Maybe there's a correlation to be found there. You know, as uh, societies become less empathetic, they tend towards these things or they end up in war, mm. you know, historically. It'd just be interesting to contemplate something like that. and. Is there yeah. a big rebounding of empathy after a war or no? Or, yeah, that's my thought. Yeah, no, totally. I love it. I, of course, we'd have to probably retrofit some, you know, going back to, to re-understand it. Because in any event, there's also a big challenge, Rich, which is how do you actually measure empathy? So even in any of the studies that one does, normalizing the definition and the standard and how we're measuring it, it's awfully complicated. And, and there's a whole lot of uh, subjectivity to the feeling of, you know, so, you know, receiving empathy and so on. There is, by the way, an index that was done a couple of years ago out of the UK, where a, com a uh, team from the south of the UK uh, created an empathic index for companies. And the index looked at 170 publicly traded companies and with a battery of some 50 criteria, which together allowed you to establish the empathic index of the company they were able to determine that the top 10 companies outperformed the bottom 10 by two times on the stock market. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I guess I can, I can tell you about one more experience I had. I don't know how this fits in, but um, yeah, I took my family to Japan 
a year or so ago, and I noticed there there was a much greater human presence. You know, you go to shops, there's people around, far less machines. There were just people everywhere. And people were very nice and guided you around and all that. So, you know, that's one big thing I noticed is I like the human touch. I like the, you know, having a lot more people around, even to do simple things, you know. Um, you know, like my son and I went to a department store and we asked where the Pokemon area was. And this one guard, he goes, oh, Pokemon Center. And he took us there and guided us and bowed and showed us the Pokemon Center. And you just feel really good, you know. So it was a, it was a very cool experience. And, you know, then we came back to like Chicago or something and the people there are all surly and, you know, they're like, ah, you know, they don't give a shit if you live or die. So it, you know, it does have a big effect on you. You know, the being in a nice culture where people are at least pleasant and helpful instead of, uh, you know, surly and uncaring. And uh, I agree. And the the notion leads to civility, uh, because in the end of the day, that's they don't have to be nice to you. I mean, some of them do because they're, it's their business. But the security guard didn't have to go out of his way to show you the Pokemon Center. You might just have right. a feeling of national pride, of course, but at the same time, that notion of civility, respect to one another, it, it makes me feel that in our incivility that we're experiencing in daily life, and I think it's a general feeling because the Japanese also have all none the same uh, a feeling that you know civility has declined for the Japanese as well. You've got the this this uh, notion of ethics. And the the link between empathy and ethics is also very important. And and so the ethics is I want to do good as a principle. Or I know the difference between good and bad. And if we only want to do good by the people we like, in other words, you know, the like-minded folks, but we're not interested in, in spreading that generosity, if you will, with other people who think differently, then that sort of targeted empathy. And the miscuing of ethics, therefore, going down to a lack of diversity because only my type are the right types. I might be empathic to those types, but I'm I'm not wanting to reach out to the others. Let's say a tourist that comes in, or someone who looks different from me. And 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 so the ethical construct and and is is highly linked to the empathy story. And again, I don't want to be a tyrannist when it comes to, or tyrannical about uh, being empathic all the time, because it's asking yourselves and myself anyway to to a standard I can't live up to all the time. But it's about being more empathic and, and introducing empathy as much as we can. And and certainly there are some cultures that have it better. And, and where I was thinking about that was the respect for the older and living with the older. We're in a society in America and England where old people, you know, they're they're a pain in the butt. Move them out, send them to a retirement home, community home, hospice, get them out. Whereas in the Asian culture or you know in a lot of third world cultures, you can't afford any other thing. You do end up living with multiple generations in a house, and that shared wisdom, the youth explaining new tech to the old, the old tell telling them stories about before the war. And and respecting and understanding how we get old naturally leads you to feel a little bit more empathic at some level. Of course, you can have dystopian versions of this and, and you know unhappy families. Yet, by living with people who are of a different generation, you are naturally learning their context. That's true. Yeah. Instead of, like you said, throwing them into old age homes or just hanging around with people of your own age only. Yeah, it makes a lot exactly. of sense. So what's um so with the book is it does it give a prescription? for you know for happiness or for 
finding more empathy or what's the uh like what's the summation of the book is it just like here's what is or is it you know give you uh helpful hints on how to improve your life well it, it does a little bit of everything it's it's only a 200 page book so it's reasonably short it, the the main gist is to encourage people to have more empathy so not 100% but just to have more if you're at 1 that's moved to 2 if you're at 10 that's moved to 20 whatever and and then with that uh try to prove from a very business minded perspective why it would be beneficial to you so there's a benefit proven of higher engagement of your employees there's a benefit proven of better design there's a certainly a benefit that's hard to imagine in, in, in isolatedly equate with but higher customer service satisfaction. So yeah. once you, you get into the business framework and say, oh, well, darn, this is actually going to be good for my bottom line, then hopefully I've explored and opened the big why you need to be doing it. And by the way, you'll also find people more satisfied, happier, more engaged within your organization. And ultimately, that means more employee loyalty, and that's not going to be a bad thing. Of course, if you've got a bunch of dummies, <laughs> you've got another problem. Yet, I right. think that the the, the so the, the intonation of the book is, why do we need to have more empathy? About how much it's, it's just about in, increasing empathy. And then the, the last half of the book really looks at how to encode empathy into a machine and how that can be instructive for us, both uh, from just the, the sheer learning of it, but also how it reflects back. And, and it forces us to really understand what is empathy from our standpoint? How do you want to dissect that into behaviors? Because those behaviors then become code and specific responses to inputs that you're going to experience when you're chatting with a bot or or whatever. Yeah, that's interesting. I imagine programming a bot to respond and, um, you know, by by interrupting and just telling its own stories and then you program a bot to uh to listen and say i've heard you and reformulate what they've said and then give some constructive feedback and you could literally test it probably pretty easily you know how'd you feel about this interaction uh the bot pissed me off or oh actually i, I felt like it was good you know so mm. it, it, i think it's very testable it is you're right and uh, well of course it's testable and it's very difficult because to appropriately listen to what you've said, reformulate it in a way that, you know, instead of just repeating robot matter, uh, the words you used and get that feeling of being heard uh, in a humane way is, is even that is still a little bit more difficult, a little difficult. And then underneath that is to understand the emotions that are coming through that, not just what you said, but what that makes you feel. And so pulling out of the, the, the facts that you described the feelings that you feel because in the end of the day it's it's about understanding but also understanding what you feel about it because you know if i said to you um my cat's not here well that could mean a number Your of cats not there? yeah well you know just whatever i say something but you don't know what i really feel about that you know i oh, my cat's not here that's great because i'm very allergic to cats i am yeah. or well there so am i or my cat's not here because i really love my cat and i'm very upset so there is an example of one phrase that has two very different potential meanings. And until the robot can determine that, it can misconstrue the, and, and misunderstand what's being meant. So it's, it's, more it's more complicated. And yet, I think that you're right. If we were able to show 
you know, provide a bot whose agency is to interrupt and another one who is designed to listen and reformulate. Uh, the chances are that the second one's going to come out with a better output. But of course, at the end of the day, you called for a reason, and that is that my item uh, came broken, I want it replaced. And so you also need to have that the agency to replace it. And ultimately, at least for the for the for the medium term, the chances are that that will only be achievable with a bot plus human. Yeah, I guess I can, you know, well, I guess I'm interrupting given my own stories, but I'm not sure what else to do. But uh, I can tell you a couple more stories about my interaction Go that may it. be useful to you and listeners. But uh, one is, uh, you know, it's funny, Walgreens Pharmacy. So if I call and I, you know, I want to speak to a pharmacist, the automated system literally goes, okay, let me get you to someone that can help. And I feel patronized <laughs> because they programmed the mm-hmm. system to sound like that. I swear to God, that's what it sounds like. And I'm like, what's, you know, I mean, okay, I'll get, fuck you, you know, transfer me. That's what I think. Right. So it's funny. It's like a misapplication of, of empathy. Or I don't even know if they thought about that, you know? So, yeah, well, they may be just trying to humanize it, but they don't have the right tone. Yeah, it was just funny that, and I still, I even though it was a robot saying it to me, I still reacted emotionally. So it's interesting that AI, I guess, done well or not done well, will still affect the people it interacts with big time. You know? Well, if we could just stop on that one second, Rich, which is to say, in my study, I asked whether people could uh, feel emotions uh, for a machine, and the vast majority, sixty percent, said yes, absolutely. Mm, yeah, makes sense. And then. Um, you know, I guess one other business example is, uh, you know, we go to this one restaurant a lot. And um, the last time we were there, my, my younger daughter, like, took off her shoes, you know. So the waiter comes up and says to my wife, excuse me, ma'am, you can't be in here with no shoes on. And she was like, what? And, you know, we didn't realize my younger daughter, who was like eight, took off her shoes, you know. And my wife was so embarrassed and pissed off, she walked out, you know. And we just settled the bill and left. And, and they were like, I'm sorry, that's the policy. I said, you did it in totally the wrong way totally the wrong way. You embarrassed my wife. I said, we don't want to come back here anymore. And we spent a lot of money at your restaurant. And they're like, it's the policy. You know, you know, no empathy, no nothing. So we don't go back there anymore. And they're going to lose over a year, you know, probably several thousand dollars of our business. They just don't care. So empathy does have a, a, you know, now that I think about it, it has a huge role on how people interact with businesses. Yeah. And in that particular case, the, the issue is, does that policy was written probably by someone at headquarters who let's say, you know, had there's a an initial intention was might have been good. Well, we don't want to have dirt, we want to have very clean. So no cigarettes, no bare feet, no this and that. And that was the policy. So they came from somewhere which wasn't about attacking your child. But in the implementation, you should allow the agency or, or for the individuals who are at the customer coal face to say, well, hmm, that seems like a very acceptable route. She's got her feet. She's tucked them underneath her legs or whatever, and right. it's just an eight-year-old. And so that's this is silly. I'm not going to say anything about it. You know, that's writing policies. Uh, a, you can explain them better, and two, you should review them from the customer standpoint. As you know, on the one hand, you want to, you might have this uh, conflicting idea of wanting to have complete, fan, um, you know, uh, cleanliness. On the other hand, total happiness. And so you need to make a call. And they made the wrong call. And then they didn't apologize or anything. They just kept saying, like, robots, yeah. it's the policy. It's the yeah. policy. They couldn't say, like, I'm totally sorry. I know this is ridiculous, but, you know, yeah, our for hands example, are tied or whatever. Or, just, you know, we, 
We value you being here. Please come back. Here's the coupon, something. None of that, nothing. But we were like, goodbye. You know? Absolutely. And they, they yeah. should suffer for that. Well done. Stand up to it. <laughs> well, well, very good, Mitch. So um, now that you've heard me out and shown me empathy, I appreciate it. But uh, the, for listeners, what are some resources for them? So they can get your book, what, Amazon? And you know, where can they get your book? And where can they find out more about you and uh, you know, connect with you somehow? Thanks for asking, Rich. So the book, I have decided yeah. to uh, distribute it uniquely through Amazon. Uh, it's available as an audio book, a Kindle, and a paper book uh, cool. on Amazon in your country, pretty much, uh, or you know, as as Amazon is available. And uh, and otherwise, I I write about two blog posts a week. I've been uh, and and I've got a podcast which I've been doing for ten years myself, uh, and nice. those can all be found on minterdial.com. Otherwise, the final thing probably is my little, little Twitter handle, M-D-I-A-L, M-D-I-L. M-D-I-L. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Minster, it's been a great call. I really appreciate you coming on the, the podcast. Many thanks for having me on, Rich. Look forward to staying in touch. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues where we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.